0: Good morning and welcome to Calvary Chapel. If you have your Bibles, please open with me to Philippians, Philippians chapter 4, where we'll look at verses 1 through 4. I've titled this message, Challenges for the Church. Let's read our text together. Therefore, my beloved brethren whom I long to see, my joy and my crown in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Eodia, and Suntuke to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, my true companion, I ask you also to help these women who shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also, and the rest of the fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Let's pray. Father, we come as a family, as Ohana, to seek you, to seek your presence. We want to hear from you. and We ask that you would give us ears to hear, that you'd remove the distractions, that you would give us a heart and a will to obey and follow you, follow you in all your ways. Guide us today. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Challenges can be good, and challenges can be bad. But oftentimes, we don't like challenges, because challenges mean conflict. But really, in our text today, we are commanded to stand firm. Stand firm, you know, in that challenge, in face of those challenges. Look back at verse 1 again. Let me show you. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy, my crown, stand firm. Notice, in the Lord, my beloved. Now, Paul begins really with the the word therefore. Bearing these things in mind, living as citizens of the heavenly commonwealth we saw last week, our home is in heaven. We're pilgrims. This world is not our home. This is only preparation for all eternity. We're waiting for the hope of the coming Savior. And the Philippians are exhorted, stand firm. But notice that stand firm is in the Lord. You cannot stand firm on your own. You have to stand firm in the Lord. You need that supernatural strength, that power of the Holy Spirit. Well, I like the fact that when Paul is speaking to him, he uses these enduring names for the believers. First, Paul calls them brethren. They're part of the family. They're the Ohana. They're dear to him. But not only does he call them just his brethren, they're beloved brethren. They're dear to him. His thoughts are upon them wherever he's at, and that's why he's writing this letter. He's writing from a heart of love. He's concerned for them. In fact, he goes on and he says that he adds this thought that he longs for them. That is, he longs to be with them again. Now, apart and writing this letter, you understand how it is to be apart from your loved ones if you're Kids have gone away to school, and and you long to be with them. You long to hear from them and see them and and know that everything is fine. You just miss that fellowship. And and this is what Paul does. He says, I I long for that fellowship. I I miss you. I, I long for the time that I'll see you face to face. Well, he speaks further. He says, they are his joy, his crown. He is their spiritual father, just as we would have a joy over our own kids. He has a joy seeing as we walk in our faith, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, watching us from that birth to grow and mature, and and we're his joy because he sees us walking in the Lord. And certainly in this context, he's speaking about the Philippians. But they are his crown, his reward. Speaking perhaps even of that that Bema seat or that judgment seat that's mentioned in 2 Corinthians 5.10. They are the the fruit of the the gospel as God has sent them and God's equipped them and prepared them and, and then led them there. And they've come to the Lord and, and he has been faithful. And in fact, it's the Lord that's made him faithful who has equipped him and give him every opportunity. And he exhorts him, stand firm in the Lord. And I want to encourage you today that you can stand firm in the Lord. Just as Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. When we stand in the Lord, that doesn't mean I can do everything I want, but I can do everything that God has called me to do. Notice the words are stand firm in the Lord and the Lord will strengthen you. If you ask anything according to his will, it is a done deal. He'll give it to you. So the question becomes, do I want to stand firm in the Lord? Do I want to be separated for the Lord, for his glory, for his purpose? And in order to stand firm, just as we're in the Lord, it means supernatural strength. And that's why he strengthens us. Well, there's a part for you and me. And it's what we call putting on that armor of god. Well, let me read from Ephesians 6:13 and 14. Therefore, take up, notice, the full armor of God, so you'll be able to resist that evil day, having done everything to stand firm. Verse 14, stand firm therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Every day we're in the word. We're drawing from the word. The word is washing and cleansing us and is enabling us to go out by faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. And as you put on this armor, God, we can go out and we can stand firm in the Lord. We're soldiers of Christ, whether people like that title or not, but the true soldier, stop and think, He's not quick to surrender or fall or even be moved. In fact, that is that the Christian soldier, he knows his strength and security is always in the Lord. Jesus Christ is our our power, our protection. He is our hiding place, our strong tower that we can run into. That's why the words are so important. Stand firm, and and that word "stand firm" comes from a word that means "stake co," which means stand firm or persevere to keep on standing. You know, the tense is a continuous, ongoing thing that we need to do. Standing firm against the onslaught of the enemy, and we must remember that we are in a battle, a spiritual battle. And the enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And regardless of of the pressure of the attack, the soldier, the Christian soldier, he learns to refuse to give ground because he knows again he can do all things in Christ who strengthens him. So he does not waver. He does not give an inch. But he stands firm. Again, no matter how great the trial the pressure, the temptations, the, the lermets that will try to draw him away. And Jesus being that perfect example of one who stood firm and persevered. Well, you know, there's several areas that you and I can stand firm for the glory of God. And it's said in the scripture again and again and again. And the first one I want to call your attention to is really there in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13. Notice what it says. Be alert. Stand firm in the faith and act like men. Be strong. So we are to stand firm in the faith. It's an exhortation. It's something that if God calls you to do, God enables you to do. Again, I'm going back to that verse. You can do all things in Christ who strengthens you. It becomes a matter of choice. Will I stand firm? In the Lord? Or will I stubbornly try to stand firm on my own? And sometimes we do on our own because we're prideful. We don't want to ask for help. We don't want to put ourselves in that place. Well, look with me at Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, notice with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. We're keeping the main thing, the main thing, and we are to stand firm in the fellowship. How? One spirit, one mind, striving for the faith of the gospel. We'll look again on the screen. Galatians five one. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not subject again to the yoke of slavery. So we are to stand firm in the freedom that was given to us, not, not yield back to, again, legalism, to go back into the rules and regulations. We stand firm in the freedom, but we stand firm in the love of Christ the work of Christ, what he has done. In fact, look with me again on the screen, Second 2 Thessalonians 2.15. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which were taught, whether by word of mouth or letter from us. Paul's saying you need to stand firm on what I've instructed you on. You're not talking about somebody else's traditions, but those things that have been explained to them by the apostles. So what are we to do? Stand firm in the foundation of Christ because Paul taught Christ. In fact, when he came to Corinth, he determined to teach nothing but Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ crucified the message of the, the cross, that we are to deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow him daily. And how do we stand firm in 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 facing this persecution and suffering that is coming to so many around the world, it may even come here if the Lord doesn't come soon. It's knowing who the Lord Jesus Christ is and what he has done for you and me, standing upon those traditions, those things that the apostle Paul taught along with Peter and John. Look in our text, though, Philippians 4.1, today, therefore, my beloved brethren whom I long to see, my joy and crown in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. You know, we are to stand firm in our family, in our ohana. That is what I'm talking about is our family in Christ. We have brothers and sisters. We are to stand firm. And it's so important to understand that Paul uses this word in this text, crown, Stephanos, which is a victor's crown of the athletes. And the Philippian believers were the results of that victory. They were standing firm, but they needed to continually stand firm. The enemy is going to try and stumble you. But when you do fall, and you will fall, Be quick to confess your sins, for he is faithful and just to cleanse you of all unrighteousness and put you back on that path. Well, there's also this challenge for harmony. Look at verse 2 again in our text. Paul writes, I urge Eodia and Sutuke to live in harmony in the Lord. Well, let me give you a little background to this text. I want to go to Acts sixteen thirteen, And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where they were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. The reason I call your attention to this passage is because, see, this when Paul had come to Philippi. There wasn't a synagogue. There needed to be at least 10 Jewish men to have a synagogue. But there was no synagogue. The next place that the Jewish people would be and remember Paul, always in his ministry, would go to the Jews first for three weeks, and then he would go to the Gentiles, would be down by the river because they needed water for cleansing and for the rituals. And when he goes down there, what does he find? He finds women. There's no mention of any men. Not saying there wasn't a man, but remember that in Acts 16, this was again up in Asia and Europe in that area. And these people were scattered from diaspora. These weren't always faithful Jewish people. Why, they were faithful Jewish people. Some had hung to the traditions. Some had intermarried. And perhaps even some of these women were married again to Gentiles and no longer Jews. But he comes to them. Paul's always looking, looking for someone that will listen. And the Lord always leads him. Now, notice again this these two women in the church at Philippi, they were important. They were influential in the church. Now, the word eodious means prosperous journey or fragrant. But her arguing left a stench in the church and left a division in the church. And soon uh, touquet, means fortunate or pleasant acquaintance. But these two women weren't getting along. It wasn't a, a pleasant situation. In fact, their attitude and their actions were very fleshly and carnal. First corinthians three three on the screen, notice again for you're still fleshly for since there's jealousy and strife among you, you're not fleshly, aren't you? Are you not walking like mere men? And while this is written to the, the Corinthians, it's true to the Philippians and is true to every church because we all have these same struggles. Well, There's something else I want to call your attention to in this passage. Paul uses the word urge twice. Once with each name and I think it's the reason for it is avoiding any favoritism. He can't say, well, I urge you, but not urge you. We can't take sides. Whenever there is a a disagreement, there's always two sides and both are apart and both need to be dealt with. And we're not there to take the side of this one or that one. There's only one side and that's the side of Jesus Christ. Our goal is help bring people together in harmony and unity. And it certainly is a challenge. Well, unity among the members of the church always depends upon on the unity of thinking. That is what I'm referring to as Christ-like thinking. Whenever there is a division between people, one person is angry and stomps off and doesn't want to come back to the table, doesn't want to work through, they are being carnal and fleshly, as we saw in 1 Corinthians three three. We don't like to hear it, but it is the truth. That's why in Philippians one twenty seven, again, look on the screen, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, we have that responsibility to to live as Christians. They were called Christians first in Antioch because they're like Christ. So we are to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel Christ, the good news of Christ. That when people see us, they see Christ. It goes on in that passage. Notice it says, "So that whether I come or see you or remain absent, I'll hear of you that you're standing firm." Notice again, in one spirit." one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. We're here today not to be entertained. We're here together to find out how we can stand firm together, be in one mind, and together get out the gospel message that our lives are affected and transformed, and wherever we go, people see Christ. So Paul exhorts them, live in harmony. And that harmony, again, is in the Lord, which is the family of Christ. But living as Christ would live. Now, at times, this can involve people with different opinions and diversity, even different methods without disunity of mind, disagreement, without division. Because in reality, it's all about Jesus. When there's disunity in the church, it hurts and even destroys the testimony of the church, the testimony that we believe in Christ and we are one. Now, both Peter and Paul address these. Let me go back and show you in 1 Corinthians, Paul's address into the Corinthians. Now, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you All agree, and there be no divisions among you, but that you may be complete, same mind, same judgment. Every place that Paul went, he was confronted with the problems that you and I have as people, our humanity, our flesh. We can think that we're walking in the Spirit all the time, but in reality, sometimes we're just selfishly walking, thinking only about ourselves and our own agenda. And that's why the, the Apostle Paul exhorts them again and again. How are they to be? There's to be no divisions. They are to agree, to be the same mind, same judgment. And this is referring to about Christ. What he has done and what he's called us to do and that we're brothers and sisters, and we're in the army together, in the trenches together. And so often we forget that the division is is really the, allowing the enemy to get a foothold. Peter confronted the same thing in his epistle in chapter 3, verse 8. To sum it up, all of you are to be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, There are different reactions in the church. The church is made up of different people. They're professing, but not all of them are believers. They're professing Christ, but not often possessing the relationship. Sometimes they're just in their carnality, in their flesh. Well, the first group I want to point out to you, there are those that are standing on the sideline when two people are disagreeing. They're feeling the fires behind the scenes. They like a good fight. It's exciting, and it brings a rush for them. And certainly, this is not harmonious. This is not kind-hearted. This is not concerned about what's important to Christ. Well, there's another group I want to call your attention to. It's those who flee, avoid any and all conflict of any kind. They just can't deal with it. Sometimes it's their own emotions, the things they're going through. That's true. But sometimes people just don't want nothing to it. I've seen it time and time again when two are fighting. There are those that take sides and those that say, I don't want to be a part of it. Exit stage right. Well, when a person flees, they miss an opportunity. An opportunity that is to pray. Because prayer is powerful. Those who know that importance of prayer, they grieve. They grieve over the sin. They grieve over the division. And they cry out to God. And they watch as God moves. There's another group I want to call your attention to. Those are the the peacemakers, the peacemakers, they want to bring peace. Some actually get themselves really in the middle of a mess and they end up getting caught in the center, like a dog fight. If you've ever seen a dog fight, two dogs are fighting. If somebody tries to get between them, boy, they get chewed up. It's something we shouldn't do. But if you've ever seen a dog fight, one of the things that I learned young is if two dogs are fighting in the yard, take a hose and hit them with the water, and the power of the water will turn them away. Don't get caught in it, well, there's wisdom there in a in, a, in a spiritual way, because what we need to deal with is God's wisdom, and they need to be washed with the water of the word, and sometimes they need a mediator, but there has to be a time. There are ways to say things to people. you can know that this one and that one both love the Lord, and there are words that God will give you wisdom exactly what to say. That they can stop, stop for a moment. They could be angry like little kids when they're they're mad. They can they can make up, but they're still mad on the inside. But there's a danger in this too for those peacemakers. That's what Paul is saying in Galatians six one, brother. If any of you are caught in trespass, you who are a spiritual, restore one. Notice in the spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted, caught up. I've seen people get in, in the middle and then take a side or begin to yell and fight with the two. You can't. You have to draw a line, and say, enough is enough. Stop. We're done today. If I sit down with two people, a husband and a wife, and, and they begin to bicker and fight with one another, I said, it's over there's no more conversation because they want to fight and there's nothing I can do when people want to fight. And oftentimes they stop because they really, part of them wants to work it out. They think about it, they begin to listen. And we need to remember that just as Romans twelve eighteen says, if possible, so it depends upon you, Be at peace with all men. But, you know, sometimes we can't be. Sometimes people just don't want peace. Sometimes people just want to be mad. And boy, do we need the wisdom of God to desensitize that situation. Sometimes the only way is in just prayer. Sometimes God will give you the wisdom exactly what to do in those circumstances. Well, I want to call your attention again in verse three, the challenge to service. Paul writing again says, indeed, true companion. Now notice he's speaking singular to one person. I ask you, singular, also to help these women who have shared in my struggle for the cause of the gospel. Now, the indication is this is a mature person. We don't know if it's an elder, a pastor. Who it is at this point? We don't know. But Paul trusts him. And Paul's concerned about this person, and he's concerned about these women. And Satan has got a foothold. And these women have taken their eyes off of Jesus and now they put their eyes upon others who are no longer serving the Lord and Paul's wanting to get them back serving. And that's something very important to understand. When people are serving the Lord together, oftentimes they're working together. They forget their problems. They forget their divisions. Now, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life, so Paul speaking of this one, he speaks to his true, true, genuine. That isn't compared to counterfeit. It's interesting. He says true because even within the church, there are these antichrists or counterfeit. The wheat grow among the tares. These, these little phrases remind us not everyone who professes Christ is a believer. Now, again, we mentioned this is probably someone in authority, could be a pastor, could be an elder. However, he is to be the mediator. He was a companion. He was a partner with Paul. And that could be translated fellowship. Someone who Paul had great fellowship, intimacy with. He was a a fellow worker or or yoke fellow in another translation. He was co-yoked in this work. So Paul provided the reasons to help these people first. They contended with Paul as an athletic term. They, they were with him side by side as, as workers. They were effective in the ministry. They were helpful and they were needful. They were to serve and help the women that labored with Paul. And like this, we're in, it seems fitting for us in our culture here to, to be samurai Christians. It, it seems odd to use that word samurai, but that word samurai simply means to serve. That's what Christians do. We, we serve. We, we serve the Lord, and we serve one another in love, and we esteem others higher than ourselves. It's simply who we are. It is our identity. It's, it's what we do. It's how we live. These women who had helped Paul, they labored and struggled together with Paul, but they weren't. They, they weren't doing what they once did. Now, again, they, they need to be side by side together in the battle, and that's so important. I'm so thankful that we stand together. With one front, one goal. It's about Christ. We stand in prayer. Now we may have different ministries in, in the community in many different ways, but we're standing one for the, the goal of seeing God's glory, seeing lives changed, impacted, people discipled and people comforted and in coming into the, in the presence of the Lord. We are truly soldiers of Christ fighting together in the Lord's army for the souls of men so that their names will remain in the book of life. Look at verse 3 again. It, It brings up this next point I want to call your attention to, whose names are written in the book of life. Now, he's referring to these two ladies. Now, names written in this book of life. See, when we look at a dictionary, there is a dictionary, a list of famous names. The editors must make difficult decisions about who to include and whom to exclude. Webster's New World Dictionary, for example, includes Audrey Hepburn, but leaves out Spencer Tracy. It lists Bing Crosby, but not Bob Hope. Willie Mays, but not Mickey Mantle. The executive editor, Michael Agonis, explains the names make the cut based upon their frequency of use, their usefulness to the reader. But as I mentioned, this book of life, it's another book. And it's far more important than any dictionary. In this book, there are names included and some excluded just the same. It's called the book of life. And only those who are listed in its pages will ever enter enter heaven in eternal life. The sole criteria of of those included is the sinf- sincere faith in Christ Jesus. But what is this book? That really becomes the first question. You know, I've talked to people. Well, it appears in different Bible writers express the book of life in different ways. In the Old Testament, for example, it, it may have meant simply a, a registry of all the living people. It seems also to have a special meaning referring to the register of all who claim to be God's people. In fact, look with me at Exodus 32. But now, if you will forgive my sin, if not, please blot me out of your book, which you have written. For the Lord said to, said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of this book. Psalm 69, 28. May they be blotted out of the book of life and may they not be recorded with the righteous. So we get this idea that in this book, the righteous are recorded here, but anyone who is proved not righteous is blotted out of the book anyone who has sinned. Well, that sin is not just the sin of of everyday sin that you and I do, but it's a sin of rebellion. It is the blasphemy of the Spirit. It's the continued rejection of Jesus Christ. Again, among those who of God's people from the Old Testament times and through the present are those who become apostates, who were not genuine, true believers in the first place. Apostate is, is the word means falling away. These are people that knew what the truth was in their mind, but they had never received the Lord. They had walked and been apart, but then they walked away. It could be example in the Old Testament of, of Israel that there, God always had a remnant, but there were many of Israel who called themselves chosen people, yet they turned away from God and they worshiped idols and other gods. They were apostate in their faith. They then, when they begin to worship other gods, they demonstrated this openly and they were deliberately rejecting God and God removed their name from the book of life. Even in the church, there are those that are true believers and false believers. And if you continue in my word, Jesus says, then you're truly my disciples. But there are some that will walk away. There were some that will turn away. Something will happen in their life, and they will curse God, and they walk away, and they will worship another God. But in contrast... True believers do not reject God and God does not remove their names from the book of life. Man, if there's a place for an amen, that's it. God doesn't remove our names from the book of life because we sin today. He's provided. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But the sin that He's talking about is the sin of direct rebellion of rejecting him as God. But the true believer, he's assured of eternal life. And not only eternal life, it's fullness. Now, look again at Exodus thirty-two, thirty-three on the screen. The Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out. The one who rejected. Revelation 3, 5. He who overcomes will be clothed with white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. The book of Revelation is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is speaking, he says, he who overcomes. You're an overcomer by the blood of the Lamb, by the testimony of the saints, by trusting in Jesus Christ, standing firm in the faith in Jesus Christ. That person is clothed with white garments. White garments is always a picture of salvation in the Bible. Notice those who are saved, I will not erase their name from the book of life. But Jesus says, I confess his name before my father. If you deny Jesus before man, he will deny you before his Father. But if you confess Jesus Christ before the world, before man, he will confess you before the Father. Now, the the usage of this idea of the book of life has developed a more specific meaning, and up on the screen you'll see that, again, uh, it's described in Revelation thirteen eight, where you can read more detail, and then again in Revelation thirteen eight through ten, and you see that it determines one's destiny whether your name is written in the book of life or not. And discussed in in detail, talked about in Revelation twenty, in verse twelve, and certainly more than just verse twelve, but it's talking about the white throne judgment when those books are going to be opened. And the duty, the duty, what? To rejoice that one's name is written in the book of life. It's not whether a person has power or he speaks in tongues or he has this gift, but that your name is written in the book of life. Is your name written in the book of life? Unless you know your name is written in the book of life, how can you have a peace a peace that passeth all understanding. Well, again, in Revelation 3, verses 4 through 6, you see the meaning of it. And then in Hebrews twelve twenty three, we see the, the name is written in heaven. The Bible simply, plainly, teaches only those who personally, consciously, ex- explicitly confess Jesus Christ as Lord possess this eternal life. It's their names that are written in the book of life. It's those who continue in the word in the Lord. All others will will face a holy and a just wrath of God and will be cast in hell for all eternity. All throughout the New Testament, biblical writers uniformly describe a coming of a fixed and final divine judgment. Let me show you from Revelation 20. Then I saw a great white throne in him who sat upon it, from who the presence the earth and heaven fled away. No place was found for them. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. The sea gave up the dead which were in them and the dead, and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged in every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death and the lake of fire. And if anyone's name is not found, written in the book of life, he is thrown into the lake of fire. Now there's two things I want to comment about here. There are the books and the book of life. The books indicated by other passages, and even in this passage, that they're deeds, recorded deeds, they're good and bad. Now, for the person who has rejected Jesus Christ, the deeds will determine how severe that judgment is in Hades. The more wicked, the more evil, the more rebellious, the worse the judgment will be for all eternity. The person who simply rejected but lived a good life will will go to hell. Because they did not, re- they did not receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, but they will not have a severe judgment. In the same way, at the Bema Sea, there is this book of deeds, and based upon how you've lived your life and what you've done with the name of Jesus Christ, the greater the work that you have done for the Lord, is the greater the reward. In fact, He's enabled you. He's prepared good works before the foundation of the world. He's even put the desire in your heart to do it. But the question is, did you do it? Not to do some of those things doesn't mean that a loss of salvation, but a loss of rewards. Here, the person is thrown into this pit and will suffer for their deeds. But the reason they go is because they rejected Jesus Christ. Who goes? Those whose name is not written in the book of life thrown into that fire. Now, Hebrews 9.27 says this, And as much as, as appointed for men to die once, and after this, judgment comes. Look on the screen. There's a cemetery. There's a lot of tombstones there. Ten out of ten will die, except for those at the time of the rapture. What will they write on your tombstone? Will they write, he loved God and he loved others? Or will they write, he loved himself and lived for himself? A very humbling thing to walk through a cemetery and begin reading tombstone after tombstone after tombstone and you see what was important to some and what was not important to some. Sadly, there's only a remnant that really trusted the Lord. Many have deceived themselves in the life they've lived. Moses asked for forgiveness for Israel's sin. And if the Lord would not do this, He asked his name be blotted out of the the book of life. You know, the thing that I'm amazed about that is, is the love. Moses had a love for God, but he had a love for the people. He was willing to lay down his life, give up his own salvation for those that didn't have it. That's what God is working into your heart, in my heart. To love the unloving, to give ourselves up for others. Notice that Moses' name was already recorded in the book of life because of his relationship with God. It was written in there even before that relationship, many believe. Your name was written in there before you even had a relationship. But God knew you. And how you live this life, whether you live it for yourself or live it for God, will determine whether your name is removed or not. And the person's name that is in that book of life is the one that learns to live a life of love. Not trying to fulfill the law and this rule and that rule, but living and loving as Moses lived. Living and loving as Jesus did. See, Moses' name was recorded either at his birth or even maybe when it was conceived in the mother's womb, and some suggest even before the foundation of the world. It's kind of hard to debate those, and I don't want to debate those things. But it comes back to the same question, is your name written in the book of life or has it been blotted out? There's only one thing that can blot it out. That's the sin of rebellion, the rejecting of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Again, Revelation three five says, "He who overcomes will be clothed with white garments and will not erase his name from the book of life." First John five four says this: that whatever is born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. In fact, even faith is a, a gift of God. As you turn to him, he gives you the faith to believe. Revelation twenty-two nineteen. Look again. If anyone takes away the words of this book of prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which is written in this book. When a person takes away the words that God has written tries to keep the world from it, is really showing that he is really not a true believer. Truly, the wheat and tare grow side by side. The Bible reveals there is a book of life, a record of all who have ever lived, and there is also a Lamb's book of life. In fact, in Revelation twenty one twenty seven. Nothing unclean, no one who practices abomination and lie shall ever enter into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. See, this book of life is really the Lamb's book of life. There's not enough time to develop the whole story, but it is the Lamb's book of life. John ten twenty-eight and 29, I love it because it says, I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish and no one can snatch them out of my hand my father who has given to given them to me is greater than all and he or excuse me and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand see jesus christ gives life to those who call upon his name and they will never perish And no one can snatch him out of his hand. You know what I like? If no one can snatch him out of the hand, a true believer never could jump out of his hand. The only one that would turn away is that apostate who never really knew him. Luke ten twenty says this, Nevertheless, do not reject in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written or recorded in heaven, in the book of life. Again, is your name written in the book of life? Is it written in the Lamb's book of life? Have you ever been born again? This is the only way that a person can keep his name written in the book of life. If, if a person is born again and he continues in God's word, if your name is not there, when you stand before the Lord, you will spend eternity in hell. Well, look with me. Verse 4, we see the challenges for steady rejoicing. Sometimes it is hard to rejoice, sometimes because we see a world that it's going to hell. and Their names aren't written in the book of life, but yet the Lord says rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. It's the only way that you and I could ever move on. See, Paul turns from an individual situation which again, could speak to all of our hearts and what we are to do and how to deal with situations when there is division in the church and the consequences of that. But he now turns the entire church and repeats his favorite exhortation. And the secret of this exhortation is found simply in those words, in the Lord. See, the person who is, his name is written in the book of life. He is in the Lord. He is safe. He is secure. He's kept by the power of God. He is not apostate. He is not perfect, but being made perfect. Paul would say again earlier in, in Philippians, I'm confident this very thing. He who began a good work in you will complete it till the day of Christ Jesus. Until Jesus comes for the church, he will finish the work in us. So, no matter how dark the circumstances of life may be, it's always possible for Christians to rejoice in the Lord. We know that he's using those circumstances, but we also know that our our destiny, our hope, that our, our name is written in that book of life. In spite of those trials, we can still rejoice. And here the exhortation is rejoice with the link, a challenge, a challenge in the face of these quarreling saints, settle their differences and how it grieves our hearts when when a a husband and a wife get a divorce or or two families that walk together for a long time or division and, and there's a sorrow, but we can still rejoice knowing that somehow God will use it. What he's saying is we need to constantly, habitually be rejoicing continually no matter what is going on because otherwise we give Satan a foothold. But how do we rejoice again? It's our knowledge and our intimacy with Jesus Christ which will lead you to joy every single time. It is the key to rejoicing. It's that joy that the Lord provides also that gives us the strength to face the trials, to face the storms, to face the suffering in a world that doesn't know Him. Lord, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for opening up our hearts. We pray for those Father, that do not know you, that you would draw them, that you would use us or use others, that you would open up their hearts. We pray for those that might be going through difficult times and divisions and bickering and fighting, and we pray, Lord, that you'd bring them to their senses, that they return and not give the enemy a foothold, that they will not be sidetracked or stumbled from moving on in the faith as fellow soldiers and Christians, and yet there are many that have given in time and time again. God, have mercy upon them. Have mercy upon us. Fill us with that abundant joy and give us fresh vision this day. I thank you, Lord, for these precious souls, these lives, the work that you're doing in them manifest your glory in them today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.